Well, if you would take your Bibles with me and open up to the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament. Um, it's one of the it's one of the prophets that we call among the the major prophets because it's one of the bigger books in the Old Testament. Um, so we're going to go to the book of Isaiah in chapter 8, although we're going to be focusing on one verse in chapter 9. I'm going to read from verse 8, verse 19, through verse 7 of chapter 9. <clears throat> but before we read, I'm going to pray for God's help one more time. Lord, Lord, we trust in you. We trust that you're going to do a work among us today. We trust that you're going to use your word in our hearts and in our lives. I pray that you would open up our eyes to behold wondrous things from your law. pray that you would help us to, to look deep within the scriptures and see Christ in all of his glory there. Help us now, Lord, by your great and mighty power. We know that you can do it. We know that you can do wonderful things in our hearts and in our minds today. And we ask that you would, for your own glory, and that the sake of and the name of Christ would be lifted up. In our Lord Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So follow along with me, if you would, as I read um, Isaiah chapter 8, verse 19, through chapter 9, verse 7. It says, And when they say to you, Seek those who are mediums and wizards, who whisper and mutter, Did not a people seek their God? Did they seek the dead on behalf of the living? To the law and to the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. Notice that word light. They will pass through it hard-pressed and hungry, and it shall happen when they are hungry that they will be enraged and curse their king and their God and look upward and they will look to the earth and see trouble and darkness gloom of anguish and they will be driven into darkness nevertheless the gloom will not be upon her who is distressed as when at first he lightly esteemed uh, when he lightly esteemed the land of Zebulun and the land of Nephtali in other words when the darkness comes it's not going to last forever let me read that again nevertheless the gloom will not be upon her who is distressed as when at first he he lightly esteemed the land of Zebulun and the land of Nephtali, and afterward more heavily oppressed her by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan in Galilee of the Gentiles. Now look at verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. You have multiplied the nation and increased its joy. They rejoiced before you according to the joy of harvest. Rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you have broken the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor as in the day of Midian. For every warrior's sandal from the noisy battle and garments rolled in blood will be used for burning and fuel of fire. For unto us, why is all of this happening? For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty. God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end, upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice. His kingdom is going to last forever, and it's going to be a good kingdom. From that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Now the verse that we're going to focus on this morning is verse 6. 
Verse 6 starts with some of the most surprising words. For unto us, unto us, a child is born. Think about who these, think about who these people are. What did we read? It, it, it's kind of hard to follow along unless you go slowly, I know. But if you look back in chapter 8, verses 19 through 22, what you see is a people who are consulting mediums and wizards. Today, we might, um, we might think of them as like shamans or, or psychics, or we might, we might think of seances, people who want to ask, ask of the spirits for, for guidance and counsel. What should we do? And those who do such things, what, what's their state? Well, it says in, in verse 20, to the law and to the testimony, forget the shamans, forget the psychics, forget the mediums and wizards. What's the solution? What what should we look to instead? The law and the testimony, your Bibles. If they do not speak according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. It's a people of spiritual darkness. They can't see. They don't know up from down. They don't know which way to go. Look down at verse 21 and 22. They will pass through it hardly pressed and hungry. And it shall happen when they are hungry that they will be enraged and curse their king and their God. And look upward. Then they will look to the earth. In other words, these people, have they're at their wit's end. Everywhere they turn, there is no hope. What do they have instead of hope? What do they have? And see trouble and Darkness. So when they consulted the mediums and the psychics, it was just darkness in their souls. And wherever they looked, what did they see? They just found darkness of trouble. This is these two different kinds of darkness. But it is to the people in darkness that the child is given. You see that? Look at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 9. Nevertheless, the gloom will not be upon her who is distressed as when at first... He lightly esteemed the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterward more heavily oppressed her by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan and Galilee of the Gentiles. So if he's not going to press them for a long, long time, what is there going to be instead? Verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. A great light. Even though these were the people who had no way to turn. These were the people who were spiritually dark. And my friends, do you know that that is your and my story? Spiritually dark people. Do you know what it's like to be at your spiritual wit's end? To not know which way to turn, where to find hope? Everywhere you look, darkness and gloom and anguish and trouble. We sang it just a minute ago. Did you, uh, in, in, the, in, the, in the second song, we sang, And Can It Be? And I love the third verse when it talks about long my imprisoned spirit lay. And he pictures a dungeon that was fast bound in sin and in nature's night. He calls it a night, and he was locked in. It says in, in Ephesians chapter 2, it says that we were dead in our trespasses and sins in which we once walked. It says in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 12, it says, We had no hope and were without God in this world. That is 
is your experience and that is my experience. Whether we knew it or not, we had no hope and were without God in the world. But in verse 4, in verse 4 of Ephesians chapter 2, it says, But God, but God, because of his great love, wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive. So that is the people to whom the child is given in verse 6. For unto us a child is born. Notice it doesn't say for against us a child is born. You know that it, that really should have been the case. It would have been much more logical for it to read for against us or come to destroy us a child is born because we were the people that rejected him. But it is unto us that the child is born. And who is this child? Well, you know who he is. You know who he is. His name is Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And so today we're going to look at the majesty of Jesus Christ given. The majesty of Jesus Christ given. It's very simple. We're just going to walk point by point through this verse. Isaiah 9, 6. The first point that we're going to notice is that he is the child born. A child born, for unto us a child is born, says our text. Look at those words, a child born. Did you know that when Jesus Christ came to the earth, he did not come as a fully developed human being. He came as a real baby, real as your own child that you held in your arms for the first time. The God of heaven and earth came as a as a child to a virgin mother. I want you to enter enter in with your sanctified imagination and think about it. What was that moment like in heaven when the Son of God, when the only begotten of the Father, left heaven's glory, heaven's light, when he forsook praise of angels and he condescended the infinite God who spans all heaven and earth who created all things and upholds all things by the word of his power when he at a at a moment leapt from heaven into the into the womb of a virgin the infinite God comprehended into a single cell. How many How many angels saw that? What did the angels do when that happened? Did they weep when they saw their Lord leave? Did they cry out for joy because they knew that he was on his way to redeem a lost and darkened people? We don't know what the angels did, but that was a glorious moment when the Son of God came to become a child born unto us, unto us, unto you and to me. Paul, in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16, he said, Great indeed is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. God was manifest in the flesh. God is infinite. What that means is he, he doesn't... He doesn't have a body. He doesn't have a start in a, in a, or a finish. You can't comprehend him everywhere in the universe. He is 100% there. There was not a time when God was not. And yet, upon Christmas 2,000 years ago, the Creator became the created. Unto us a child is born. That's the first thing that we need to see of this majestic Lord Jesus Christ. The second thing that we need to see is that he is also the son given. 
the son given. Verse 6 says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And you know that's not saying the same thing twice. He's not just the son of Mary. He is also preeminently the son of the Father, begotten before all worlds, light of light, God of God, very God of very God. He's the son of God. He was not only born into the world, but Look at the other word. It says he is given. Son is given as a gift for the life of the world, the life to a world that needed reconciling and that was hopeless and rebellious. To that world, the son was given. And so what that means is that for the son, the eternal son to be given for the life of the world, that means that he had to exist before he was born on that Christmas so long ago. He was alive. Not only thousands of years before he was become a man to the virgin in Bethlehem, he was alive millions of eight ages before the world even began. You know how John 1.1 starts? Genesis 1.1 says, in the beginning, God. John 1.1 says, in the beginning, the Word. The Word. In the beginning was the Word. In the very beginning. Micah 5.2. Are, are you familiar with that passage? Micah 5.2. He was another prophet among the Israelites. And he foretold the coming of Christ. And he said that the one who is going to come to Bethlehem, his goings forth were from of old, from ancient days. And that phrase... Ancient days means days of eternity. That means from all eternity past, the Savior to be born into the world, the Savior to be given into the world, was alive from the days of eternity. So do you see what we have here in, in even these first two pieces of this one verse? For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. We see that the Lord Jesus Christ is 100% God. Because as God, he alone is going to be the Savior of mankind. But we also see that he is 100% human. Because as human, he was going to fulfill the responsibilities of humanity as a substitute for all his people. But look at those words again for unto us. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Can you say that today? Can you say that the child was born for you? Can you say that the son was given for you? For you, not for the person sitting next to you, for you. Did he come for you? Did he come to save you from your sin? Did he come to redeem you? And the answer is, if you if you have put your faith and your trust and your hope and have cast in your lot completely with Jesus Christ and have decided to rest on him and on him alone for the saving of your soul, the answer is yes. But if you're saying, but if in your heart you reason with yourself and say, well, I do trust in Jesus, but I know I at least got to add a little bit in order to get me into heaven. Well, then I need to tell you that he is not the child who is given for you. He will be completely dependent upon 100% or he won't be dependent upon at all. So what are you going to do? What are you going to do, my friend? Are you going to rest completely on the, on the child that was born? On the son that was given? Give up on your ways. Or look to Christ and no life. The third thing that we need to see here is he is the one on whom the government shall rest. For unto us a child is born, for unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder. The government will be upon his shoulder. There are 
some strong people in the world. You and I have, you and I have, have seen and have known people who've got big, strong hands and big, strong shoulders. And we admire people like that. Sometimes, sometimes, when a person, when a person even can't actually use his hands or actually use his shoulders, yet we know that he's a strong person in character, don't we? But Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ is strong enough to carry the government upon his shoulder. And I'm going to explain that in a little bit. First, I want you to see the inevitability of this. In other words, it's going to happen. It says, and the government will be upon his shoulder. It's not an option. It's just going to happen. Jesus Christ is going to be the king. There are many people in the world, many enemies of Jesus Christ, who want to thwart his rule. Don't we know that? Think about it. The, the scholars in our colleges and universities try and try to overthrow his kingship students and saying, you know what, Christianity is fine as, as a religion, but, but you know there's really no reality in it. That's what they'll try to say, and so what they'll do is they'll, they'll begin to subvert a person, begin to even imagine submitting to the Lord Jesus Christ as King. Or the New Agers of our day attempt to, uh, attempt to dethrone him by by grouping him in with all the rest of the other religions and saying, okay, well, Christ can be, he can be king among all the other gods and goddesses of the world. That's fine. The New Agers, the New Agers will say, I'm perfectly okay with your Christianity. And in fact, I admire your Jesus and I admire his teachings. As soon as you say, no, the show, the government, the kingship, the rule, the throne of the universe rests upon Jesus Christ and on him alone, all of a sudden their tolerance disappears and it fades because they, 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 won't, they won't have Christ to rule over them. But it matters not what the scholars say and it matters not what the New Agers say. In fact, it doesn't matter what anyone says. Does it? it says in the Bible, the government will be upon his shoulder. It is inevitable. It's inevitable. And not only is it inevitable, but when the government is upon his shoulder, we need to think about this as well. We have a saying, don't we? Absolute power leads to absolute corruption. We know that. But the Lord Jesus Christ is absolutely good. And when the government sits upon his shoulder, it will not crush him. It will not crush him. We think of our own leaders who have power and authority sitting on their shoulders. Imagine... Imagine authority being an object to carry. We say, okay, you can have some authority in our government. And when someone attempts to pick that up, they can carry it for so long, but it gets heavier and heavier and heavier, and they crack under it. Well, why do they crack under it? They crack under it because off to the, off to the right, they can reach out and grab some money. And as they lean over for the money, they crumble underneath the weight. Whereas they reach out for some, for some sexual gratification because of the position that they hold. They're going to crumble under the weight. Or as the authority gets to their head, they crumble under the weight. They can't hold it up. Or let's suppose, and I, and I, I think this is possible, even in our human society, let's suppose that 
that it were possible for someone to pick up the government and to, and to be a good king. We know the good kings of the old stories. But do you know what happens to every good king of the old stories? They die. And then their son comes along and, and he ruins it all. But when Jesus Christ takes up the government upon his shoulder, he will not die because he is the everlasting God. And the government will not, the, the, the corruption all around won't crush him because he is eternally good. The government will be upon his shoulder. So here's the application to this brothers and sisters here's the application if this is if this is going to happen and indeed if it has happened if jesus christ is king now what are you, what are you going to do about it if jesus christ is king now what are what are you going to do about it if you ask yourself that question and you seriously don't know but if you seriously want to know you should read psalm 2 psalm 2 psalm 2 talks about the world rising up in rebellion against god where the kings of the earth plot together and they say we don't want God's rule anymore. You know what it says in Psalm 2? It says that he who sits in the heavens laughs. He laughs at their schemes. He's not afraid of their schemes and of their rebellions against him. And he speaks to the kings of the earth. He speaks to those in authority and he tells them I have set my king on Zion. My king is established. In other words, Jesus Christ is going to reign. And do you know how Psalm 2 ends? In verse 12, it says this. It says, let me turn there and read it. Psalm 2, in verse 12, I'm actually going to start in verse 10. It says, now therefore, be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. And I'll say this too. If it applies to the kings and to the judges, it certainly applies to you and me. Be wise, be instructed. Look at verse 11. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son. In other words, embrace Him. Receive Him. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Less are all who put their trust in him. So do you see it again, brothers and sisters? Just two ways. You receive the king or you reject him. Just two. Just two. We must be wise and be instructed. I need to hurry on because time hurries on. So back in Isaiah 8, it says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder. He's going to be the king. And he will uphold it. What will you do? The fourth thing we need to see is that he is wonderful. And his name will be called Wonderful. Wonderful. Notice it does not say his names will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and so on. It says his name, singular. Because he is one person who cannot be divided into things we like about him and things we dislike about him. He is not a person who has names that we say, Oh, I like those names. I will, I will adhere to those names. But these names, I'm not so sure about receiving those. No. He has one name, and he will be dealt with as the one person and the one king, Jesus Christ. And his name will be called Wonderful. Now, when we think of the word wonderful, perhaps you, perhaps your mind goes to something like a Hallmark movie. 
where some starry-eyed girlfriend looks up into the looks up into the eyes of her fiance and says, "You're wonderful." That's not what this is about. In the Old Testament, when the word "wonderful" is used, it's a word that is used only of God. Only of God. When it says that the child is born and that the son is given and his name will be called Wonderful, that means he is explicitly saying he is God. Well, why is he called Wonderful? Why is Jesus Christ called Wonderful? Well, one, he's called Wonderful because he made the ends of the earth. It says in Colossians chapter 1 that he made everything visible and invisible. He made the spiritual realm. That is, thrones or dominions, principalities and powers. It says in, in Colossians 1.16 that all things were made by him and for him. He is the wonderful, divine maker of heaven and earth and everything that fills them. Jesus Christ is also wonderful because when he dwelt on the earth and when he interacted with people, no one had ever seen anybody do anything like he did. He opened the eyes of the blind. He opened the ears of the deaf. He gave life to those who had died. He healed lepers with just a touch from his hand. He was the kindest person that you had ever spoken to. And yet, if you were a hypocrite and were fake before him, he would call you right out. There was no one like him. Truly wonderful. But you know what, my friends? He's wonderful today. He's wonderful today to you and to me. Do we know that? Is he wonderful to you? You have to ask and answer this question. Is he wonderful to you? Not just with your brain. Do you, do you, do you know in your brain that he's done all these wonderful things and have you failed to realize that he's done them out of love? In kindness to you, oh, we who are the people of God, we know. We know that he has done this for us. We know the mercy that he has given. Don't you know that? Don't you know that, that when you sinned this morning, he's given you forgiveness? And don't you know that when you sin next week and next year, he's going to give you forgiveness again? That's wonderful. Don't you know, and, and haven't you known that he has promised to be with you until the end of the age? That's wonderful. He's wonderful to us. And sometimes, my friends, sometimes, brothers and sisters, we get clouded. Sometimes we have to admit that we get bored with Christ. Don't we? Don't we have to admit that in our heart of hearts? Sometimes we feel bored with Christ. And what we have to do is we have to remind ourselves, no, no, he is wonderful. I can't see it right now. Lord, open my eyes that I can see how wonderful you really are. And when you pray that prayer, when you pray that prayer and when you mean it, you know what's going to happen is the Lord will let you see how wonderful he is. Don't you know he'll do that for you? Let you see how wonderful he is. But not only is he wonderful, he is also counselor. It says his name will be called Wonderful Counselor. A counselor is someone who offers advice. 
and guidance and direction. And you and I both have people whom we might call friends but would never take their advice. You know those kinds of people. They're, they're nice to hang out with, but you never go to them to say, hey, I'm going through this crisis of my life. What should I do? And um, think, think particularly in the context here. You remember back in chapter 8 in Isaiah, in Isaiah, who were they going to seek counsel from? Well, in 8.19, they were going to the spirit realm, the mediums, the psychics. But here's the real counselor. Here's the real counselor who knows what to do. The scriptures, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 24, Jesus Christ is called the wisdom of God. The wisdom of God. That means he is infinite in wisdom. There is nothing he does not know. Oh, my friend, do you feel confounded in the situation where you're in right now? Are you in a situation where you don't know where to go or what to do or how to answer the question? Well, there is one, and his name is Jesus Christ. He is the counselor the wisdom of God. It says, it says in the scripture, multiple places you see Jesus Christ counseling different people in different ways. It says to the weary and heavy laden, are you weary? Are you tired? Do you feel weighed down with your sin? you feel weighed down with sorrow? Do you know what Christ says to the weary and heavy laden? In Matthew 11, verse 28, he says, Come to me, come to me, you weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's what the counselor says to you. He says to those who are hungry of soul, Do you have a hungry soul? Are you looking for something to satisfy your soul? Something that you can chew on for the rest of eternity? Do you know what he says to the hungry soul? He says in John chapter 6, verse 35, he says, I am the bread of life. You want to eat something real? Forget your television. Forget your, forget your mediums. Forget your entertainments. Forget your girlfriends. Forget your boyfriends. You want something real? I am the bread of life. He says... He that comes to me shall never hunger, and he that believes on me shall never thirst. That's what the counselor says to you. Are you hungry of soul? Are you hungry of soul? Go to Christ. He says to those who are fearful of losing their salvation. You know what? You know how he counsels them? He says, he who comes to me, I shall in no wise cast out. Are you worried that Christ is going to drop you? He counsels you to take heart because anyone who comes to you will be safe. Oh, he counsels in so many other ways. There's one more that I, that I did want to read to you. It's from Revelation chapter 3. You can turn there with me if you like, Revelation chapter 3. Where he counsels, he counsels those who are spiritually mistaken. And this is what he says to those who are spiritually mistaken. Revelation 3, verse, uh, verse 18. The situation is that there was a church. There was a church that thought that they had it all. There was a church that thought that they were rich. There was a church that thought that they were clothed and and healthy, that they could see things as they really were, and that they had nothing to be ashamed of, they were spiritually mistaken. But in Revelation 3.18, 
This is what the Lord speaks to the spiritually mistaken. He says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, white garments that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may be may not be revealed, and anoint the eyes with eyesalve that you may see. Now look at verse 19. Don't forget verse 19. It says, As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Oh, do you know rebuking of the Lord. Do you know his chastening? That's a sign of love, you know. It's a sign of his love. But what are you supposed to do when he loves you like that? It says, therefore be zealous and repent. Repent. Are you spiritually mistaken, my friend? Are you spiritually mistaken? Heed the counsel. Heed the counsel of the counselor. Number six, we continue on in Isaiah. Number six, he is the mighty God. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God. Now, just in case there was any question as to what that means, if you turn over one page in Isaiah to Isaiah chapter 10, and verse, uh, verse 20 and 21, it is made clear that Jehovah, the God of Israel, is the mighty God. And if Jehovah, the God of Israel, is called the mighty God, and this one of whom we speak in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, is also called the mighty God, then I propose that the one spoken of in Isaiah chapter 9 is Jehovah, the God of Israel. And it says that he is the mighty God. He shall be called the mighty God. And he is the mighty God in a number of ways, is he not? We know that he is. We could think about his, his creative acts. We could think about his kindness to the Christian. We see the might of our God most gloriously in his cross and in his resurrection, don't we? You remember in John chapter 10, when the Lord was talking about himself being the good shepherd of the sheep. He says in verse 18, I have it written down here. He says, no man takes my life from me, but I lay it down of myself. It was in his might that the mighty God gave himself over to be crucified. This is tactics. You remember when when the soldiers came to take him away? And he asked them, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he said, I am. Do you remember what happened to that group of soldiers? They fell down to the ground at the mere utterance of his name. Do you know why they fell down to the ground at the utterance of his name, of the great I Am? Because he's the mighty God. I want you to think about this too. As he laid down upon the cross, and as those nails were driven through his wrists by Roman soldiers, it was he who was holding together the very molecules of the cross and of the nails and who was giving breath to the soldier that nailed him there. He did it because he is the mighty God. And our mighty God, the Lord Jesus Christ, as he hung there in all his might, taking the punishment for sin that you and I deserved, he satisfied the full wrath of God that was meant for me and that was meant for you. How can how, how can we say that so trite? Can we say that and it not hit our hearts to know that the mighty God suffered hell on the cross for me so that I would never have to see it ever? And he satisfied it perfectly because 
when he had suffered down to the very end and when he had filled, fulfilled the law down to the very end he, he says in his mighty victory it is finished redemption was bought price was paid salvation had been accomplished and after being laid in the grave he rose three days later you know why he arose three days later it says in Acts chapter 2 verse 24 you can look it up it says it was impossible for death to hold him. you know why it was impossible for death to hold him because the eternal life the mighty God of heaven and earth cannot be bound by death I want you to see here that he's not called the mighty preacher or the mighty prophet preachers and prophets always point to something outside of themselves like John the Baptist do you remember John the Baptist he said behold the lamb he said I'm not Christ he said behold the lamb look to the lamb but you know what Jesus Christ says Jesus Christ says come to me and he says come to me because he is the mighty God, the mighty God. Have you come to know him as your mighty God? Have your, have your children and grandchildren come to know him as the mighty God? Has the world come to know him as the mighty God? There are so many who don't, but we have. We've come to know him as the mighty God. And what do you do before a mighty God? We give him thanks. We praise him. We sing praises about him. We worship him. That's how we respond to a mighty God. Not only is he the mighty God, but also seventh, he is the everlasting father. Be that everlasting father. Now, this is not saying that he is the same person as the father in the Trinity. That would be Unitarianism. We're not Unitarian, we're Trinitarian. That is, we believe in three persons of the Godhead in one God, eternally existent as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. If he is not the same person as the Father, why is the Lord Jesus Christ being referred to as Everlasting Father? Well, he's referred to as Everlasting Father because everything else came from him. He's the source of everything else. God is the source of everything, it says in the scripture. Look over at uh, look over at Colossians chapter one. Colossians chapter one over in the New Testament. Colossians chapter one, and I'm going to start reading at verse fifteen. This is talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. It says, "He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for by Him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth." visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. And notice this also. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. The universe and all of its broad expanse, whether galaxies or what have you, come from he who is the everlasting Father. Now here's an illustration that I want to that I want to bring to your attention to help put some color to this. All right, um, and I got this illustration from Charles Spurgeon. This isn't this isn't original with me. If you look outside the window now at those hills, and you see all the trees, the pines and firs and redwoods. Imagine those trees and how long those hills have stood there. How many starry nights have passed over them time and time again. 
how many raindrops have fallen on the duff underneath the canopy, how many animals and how many people have trekked over those hills again and again and again. And yet, those unchanging hills in comparison to Jesus Christ are like a vape. Why? Because Jesus Christ is the everlasting Father. That means he's always there always there, the everlasting Father. But what that means is long before those hills were created, Jesus Christ was there. And long after they crumble into dust, Jesus Christ will be there. And long after the stars of the sky that have passed over those hills and have fallen into oblivion, Jesus Christ is there, the everlasting Father. So then what does that what, what does that mean for you and for me? Well, what that means is this. It's a very simple question. Whether you're a child or whether you're 68. The question is this. If there is someone who exists forever and exists unchangingly, why would I live my life for something other than that? If he's the everlasting father, that means that... that that's an eternal purpose to live for. If he's the everlasting father, that means that there's eternal love to experience and eternal care to know. Hopefully that's clear. So I just want to ask the question, who or what are you living for? Who or what are you living for? And here's, here's our final point. Not only is he the everlasting father, but he is also the prince of peace. And his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now what is a prince? I feel as though maybe for your in my picture of a prince could potentially be tainted. Not some sappy figure from a cartoon. A prince is a ruler. A prince is a person with authority. A prince is a lord. One who calls the shots. There are many people who admire Jesus Christ. You and I know that. We've met them many times. They admire Jesus Christ and they even say he's an inspirational person. Jesus Christ is not received as the Prince, if he is not received as the Lord, he is not fully received. In other words, what, what I'm saying is this, brothers and sisters, is, is that the, the, church, the Church of God, we as the Church of God have come to see that Jesus Christ is the Prince, whatever he asks from us, that we do. Whatever he wishes from us, that we want to do. Wherever he directs, that's where we would want to go. He's the prince. He's the Lord. He's the master. Yes, he is our savior, but he is also our Lord. Let me, let me ask you this. Not only is he the prince, but he is also called the prince of peace. The prince of peace. Why would he be called the prince of of peace. Peace as opposed to what? Peace as opposed to war. You know that? You know that, my friends? You know that at one time you and I were at war with God? We may have not even known it, but we were at war with God. It says so in Romans chapter 5, verses 8 and 10. It says that when we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And it says that he died for us when we were yet enemies. 
when I was his enemy, yet he loved me, gave himself for me. Gave himself for me as the prince who made peace, who made a way of reconciliation between myself and my God, that I might be no longer at war with him, but brought into friendship with him. And not even just friendship, but family and fellowship. Forever and forever is he your prince of peace. Is he your prince of peace? Have you come to know the peace that God gives? Not just a feeling of peace, but actual peace in Jesus Christ that goes beyond feeling, that goes to reality. Maybe here's another question. I thought of this. I forget when I thought of it. It wasn't too long ago. But the question is this. Has Christ taken away peace from your life? Do you right now feel that things are tumultuous in your life? Well, maybe you need to ask the question, why? Why are things tumultuous? Why don't I know peace? Why is there unrest? Well, is it perhaps because you're not relying upon the only one who can give you peace? Are you relying on something else? Oh, brothers and sisters, we know it. We know him as the Prince of Peace. We know him as the Prince who has purchased peace and has brought us to fellowship with God. So here it is, my brothers and sisters, the great picture of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He is the child born for us, a son given for me. The kingship, the government will rest upon his shoulder and indeed it shall rest upon his shoulder. What are we going to do about it? His name is wonderful. Do I know him? Do you know him as wonderful? He is the counselor. Have you ever asked him to give you the counsel and the guidance you need? He's the mighty God. Have you bowed your knee to the mighty God? He's the everlasting Father. Have you decided to cast in your lot and to stand and rest and lean upon him who is more unchanging than the universe? More unchanging than the ground beneath your feet? He's the Prince of Peace. And have you come to know the peace that is offers? May the Lord bless this word in ways that neither you or I can imagine. Let's pray with you. Lord, our great and mighty God, the Lord of heaven and earth, we bow before you. We forsake all others. We rest on you and will rest in nothing else. We know, Lord, that our hearts, our hearts are so prone to wander. We sang that. We sang that earlier to you, Lord. Prone to wander. Lord, we feel it. Prone to leave the God we love. Hear our hearts. Take and seal it. Seal our hearts for your course above. Take this word. Take this word. And work it deep down into each one of us, I pray. For the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, we ask. We ask that this word would govern our whole outlook, our whole eternity in it.